We're in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19 is where we're going to start. We're actually going to cover quite a few passages tonight, which is not very typical. But in each of these sections, they're just kind of lay on a foundation, but we're not a lot there to dig into. And so we're going to move on to the next and we'll lay in a little more of a foundation. Not a lot to dig into, but then we'll move on to next. And so tonight we start in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. It says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now, with the seventh trumpet, we see that this is the third woe. And if some of you say, what do you mean by the third woe? Go back with me to Revelation chapter 8. Let me remind you when we were looking at the seven trumpets. In Revelation chapter 8, look at verse 13. After the four trumpets had already been blown, it says in verse 13 of Revelation 8, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that are, the three angels are about to blow. And then we saw the fifth trumpet, sixth trumpet, and now we have the third woe, which is the seventh trumpet. Go to Revelation chapter 10 and look at verses 5 through 7. It says, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what's in it, and that there would be no more delay. But in the days, did you see that? In the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. All right. So as you're going to see tonight, the seventh uh, trumpet consists of seven bowls of God's wrath or seven plagues, which are going to be poured out on the earth. But we have already seen here, the mighty angel has said that there'll be no more delaying God finishing his purposes when this trumpet will be blown. And when this trumpet is blown, there were loud voices in heaven stating what? Look back at Revelation chapter 11. The loud voices in heaven said what? There in verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Does that bring anything to mind? The Messiah, the hallelujah chorus. I'll be honest with you, I, as I was studying this, I just couldn't help but just think of the hallelujah chorus. And actually tonight before dinner, I went on YouTube and pulled up a big choir singing the hallelujah chorus and played it before dinner. And I cannot wait because there's a day coming, folks, that the Bible has been saying for a long time that this world will actually be literally ruled and reigned by Jesus. Who is the ruler of this world for right now? Satan is. And he's not bound. For all those people that try to tell you that Satan is, is uh, being bound right now, no, he's not. He's not bound, and he's going to be. And so what you're going to see, though, in the seventh trumpet being blown, in the days of that seventh trumpet being blown, there's going to be seven bowls of wrath, or the plagues of God, poured out on the earth. And they're going to happen very quickly, and not, and not only in succession, but I think all almost together. And I'll show you that in a little bit tonight. But the purposes are to set the stage for the final battle on the earth 
where Jesus comes back, defeats his enemies, and literally sets foot on the earth. Remember way back when Jesus was on the earth, when he came to die for the sins of the world, Satan tempted him with, if you just bow down to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus, knowing full well that Satan, first of all, is a liar, because if Jesus had bowed down to him, he would no longer be sinless, and he would no ever be able to defeat him. And Satan would have never given him the kingdoms of the world, because he would have won at that time. Jesus waited patiently, and not only has he waited patiently, he went sinlessly through life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, he's ascended to the Father, and he's been waiting for this day that is coming soon. When, as you see here, when the seventh trumpet was blown, loud voices in heaven says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of, of the, our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Go with me to Daniel chapter 7. I'm only going to show you two places. We'll look at more later on in our study tonight. But I just want to kind of be used of God tonight to really burn into our brains uh, by God's word and through his spirit, the truth that there is a literal coming kingdom where Jesus is going to rule and reign on the earth. There are unfortunately so few Christians today that understand this and believe it. And there's so much prophecy that is literal. And we're going to take some time to show you this tonight. We're going to go into it in a lot more detail later on when we get to Revelation chapter 19 and chapter 20, when we get to the actual return of Jesus and the millennial kingdom. I'm going to be walking you through lots of prophecies in the Old Testament that are going to be describing the millennial kingdom and what it's going to be like on the earth during that time. And we're going to take a look at how it's not symbolic. It is literal and it's so clearly literal. But there's some things I want you to see tonight. In Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Who's this person that Daniel saw in the night visions? It's Jesus. He's always existed. He didn't just begin when he was born of Mary. He's always existed. God has always existed in three parts, three persons. And I want you to understand that Daniel saw in his visions that Jesus was going to be given the kingdoms of this world. But actually, this here in Daniel 7 is not the first time Daniel saw this. Go back to Daniel chapter 2. If you remember back when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he wanted to know what the interpretation of it was, but Nebuchadnezzar being the kind of guy he was, he wanted someone to interpret it without him telling him what the dream was. He said, if I tell you what the dream is, you can make up an interpretation. The way I'll know that you really know what the interpretation is, is if you tell me what dream I had and then interpret it. Because if you can tell me what I dreamed, then I'll believe that you're able to tell me what the interpretation is. Well, by the way, all of his magicians and uh, guys that supposedly had that ability, they're like, who can even do this? And he says, well, if you don't, I'll kill every prophet in the place. Well, that included Daniel, because he was one of the ones that was, had been brought there to serve in this capacity. And Daniel, as you know, starts praying to God. He actually asked some other people to pray for him in this process. And God gave him the dream. And then he goes and he tells in Daniel chapter 2, look at verses 31 and following. Daniel says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. 
The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, of them all. You are the head of gold. He's telling Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so will they mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Now, you've got to put yourself in this situation to understand all that's just gone on. Put yourself in Nebuchadnezzar's shoes. Daniel not only comes and tells him the dream, he then tells him specifically what it means. But what I want to bring out to you is Daniel was given by God this vision that God had given Nebuchadnezzar of the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler of the world at that time, if you will. And he was a powerful, powerful king. But after him came a lesser kingdom, which was who? The Media Persians. Remember? Babylonians and then the Medo Persians. That way you'll read some of Daniel's writings and some of his writings he'll talk about the Babel, king of Babylon was ruling at that time. But then later in his writings, because the kingdom changed over while Daniel was captive there, the kingdom changed over and he'll say in this year of such and so the king of the Medes and the Persians. After the Medes and Persians came another kingdom not as, as powerful as the Medes and Persians. And who was that? That was the Greeks, and, and remember Alexander the Great and all that, and they were the world power at that time. After that came who? The Romans. And then as you know, Jesus came on the scene at the time of the Romans being the one world power, and he came and he died for the sins of the world, and now we're in this time of a church age, but there's going to be a coming kingdom. We've already been looking at the prophecies in Revelation talking about this and how the Antichrist is going to take power. He's going to rule over the whole earth at that time. How there's going to be, remember there were ten kings that all came together. And then three of them were uprooted and one of them became one of the leaders over this whole group. And we see in this prophecy here, this picture. By the way, how many toes are on a foot and, and two feet? Ten. This is that 
last kingdom that's going to come from the Roman Empire area. And, and this ruler is going to come from the people who are going to destroy the temple and the sanctuary. We've seen all these prophecies talk about this. That there's going to be a, a, one last one world government. One last one world kingdom made up of ten kingdoms that are going to come together from across the globe. And they're going to agree together. And then the Antichrist is going to rule up from within that. And as we've even seen, they'll be together, but they really won't be together. They'll kind of be in agreement, but they really kind of won't be. And it's going to be a temporary thing. And who comes and defeats that kingdom? The stone not cut out by human hands. Now, folks, let me ask you an honest question. The Babylonian kingdom, was that a literal kingdom on this earth or symbolic? Literal. The silver part of the statue, the Medo-Persians. Was that a literal kingdom on this earth or a symbolic one? Literal. And then the Greeks? Literal. The Romans? Literal. This coming world kingdom? Literal. That means when Jesus comes and defeats them all, He's going to set up a literal kingdom on this earth as well. And we'll get into that in a lot more detail. But the seventh trumpet, when it is blown, it is setting the stage for what God has been talking about for a long time. The day in which Jesus himself is going to rule and reign on the earth. Now, by the way, has anybody ever realized or thought about the fact that when Jesus came the first time, even though the Jews didn't understand why he was there the first time, because they kind of missed it in the prophecies that he had to come twice. Did anybody ever think about the why that the Jews thought that he was going, if he was the Messiah, going to set up his kingdom right there on the earth? Why did they think that? Why did they all assume if you are the Messiah, why don't you set up your kingdom now? Why was that in their minds? Because of the prophecies. There were so many prophecies that talked about him literally ruling and reigning when he comes. They misunderstood that he had to come the first time to die and be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. But there are so many. Again, when we get to the millennial kingdom part of our study in Revelation, I'll show them, to, well, not all of them, but a lot of them to you. It is coming, folks. There's a day coming when everything will be handed to Jesus. That's just going to be a cool day. That's going to be an amazingly cool day. Right now, some of you are a little bit excited in the hope that your president wins. And maybe we can get our agenda. Folks, let me just say this real quick. It doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on. They're all promising to make America great. America hadn't been that great for a long time. Unless we turn back to God, America won't be great. Now, please hear me. We have a responsibility and a gift by God to be a part of the political process and to vote. But don't think for a second that a man is going to turn things around. And don't fight with your brothers and sisters who might not see it the same way you see it when it comes to politics. Because if your hope is in a man, you're going to get mad when somebody has the nerve to vote for somebody that's not your man or woman, if that's where you're going. But don't you think for a second that a man or a woman is going to turn things around. It's only God himself. So be a part of the process. Pray hard through what God would have you do. You'll be held accountable one day for how you vote. By the way, you will. You'll be held accountable for how you vote. But at the same time, don't put your confidence in man. Keep your eyes on God. Now, go with me to Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. We're gonna, some of you say, wait a minute, what about that 
I looked in the temple and I saw the Ark of the Covenant. We'll deal with more of that later in our study, so we'll come back to that. In Revelation chapter 15, we'll go to verses 1 through 8 now. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, that the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished." So we're going to take some time now to kind of break down the fact that here we see that the seventh trumpet consists of seven bowls of God's wrath, or seven plagues as it's described here. But John also sees not only these seven angels with these seven bowls of God's wrath, he sees believers who had been killed because they wouldn't take the mark of the beast or worship its image, standing around a sea of glass mingled with fire, and they had harps in their hands, and they sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, a couple of things real quick. Most likely, this is probably where people get their idea that people in heaven are going to be going around with harps. But at the same time, is that what this says? No. If you read the Bible, you realize the Bible doesn't describe people in heaven as floating around on clouds playing harps. In this one section, there's a certain group of folks who have come out of the tribulation period who wouldn't receive the mark, who are going to be having harps at that time, and they're going to be worshiping God during this time for a specific purpose in a specific, in a specific way. And so they're singing two songs, it says. What are the two songs they're singing? The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, when John writes to us and says they're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, is he assuming that we would know what it is? He would. Because he doesn't tell us what the Song of Moses is or the Song of the Lamb. Well, the reason is, is because the Bible's already told us what the Song of Moses is. And John himself has already told us what the Song of the Lamb is. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go back and we're going to take a look at this Song of Moses. And you may be surprised because a lot of you think that the Song of Moses is something that actually that Song of Moses that you think it is, is only a part of what it is. When you see the actual what I think the Song of Moses really is, you may be surprised. So first, let's go back and look at the one that I think is a part of what they're singing, but not the real song they're singing. Go with me to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. This is after, this is after uh, the nation of Israel has been brought out of Egypt. God leads them right to the Red Sea. They're dead-ended. Pharaoh and his army comes after them. And as you know, God parts the Red Sea. The nation of Israel walks across on dry ground. As the army of Egypt comes after them, God has the water just collapse on them and they're destroyed. When this happened in chapter 15 of Moses, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. 
The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, for your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps it congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I'll pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which you have, your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider, his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now you see, the song of Moses here was sung after God had delivered the Israelites out of the brutal control of Pharaoh in Egypt. And this is a great, awesome song where they praise God for his deliverance and his defeating of the enemies of Israel. And a lot of commentators will say this is what they're singing. I don't think this is exactly it. They, a part of this song, I think, would be sung at the time. But what is the context of when the people in Revelation chapter 15 are singing the song of Moses? What's the context? What is happening now in Revelation? What's happening on the timetable of what's, what's happening? The seventh angel is blowing his trumpet, right? And the seven angels have been given the seven last bowls of God's wrath, which is the end of his wrath during the very end of the tribulation period. And what is God about to do that they're singing his praise for? Something similar to this. He's going to redeem their death and he's going to do what to their enemies? Destroy them like he did the enemies here in this situation. But there's another song of Moses that I think is even better. It's in Deuteronomy 32. Go to Deuteronomy 32, and I think, if you'll let me take you there, I think personally this is the song they're going to be singing. Because as you're about to see, as I read to you Deuteronomy 32, the whole thing, 1 through 43, when I read it to you, I want to stop in some places and kind of point out a couple of things, but I want you to follow along with me. And if you get a little note paper, make a couple of notes as you go. Because in this song, you see in, in Deuteronomy 32, look at what does it say there right above verse 30. Of the end, the end, sorry, of chapter 31. See the end, verse 30, right above chapter 32. What does it say in your Bibles, right above verse 30? The song of Moses, doesn't it? 
Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Here's another song of Moses. And when we go through this, I can't wait for you to see this. Because if you've never seen this before, you're going to get excited about this. Because you're going to see the whole history of Israel given to them before they go into the land. God lays out for them their whole history. From when they go into the land, to them being removed because of their idols, to them being brought back in the last days. It's just going to be an amazing thing. Here is what I think the song of Moses that they're singing is. Listen to what it says. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe a greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. Anybody with me yet? If you go with me in mind, I'm not going to have you turn there, to Acts chapter 17, Paul is speaking to the Areopagus and he says that God determined, he said he made all the nations from one man. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live, that they would reach, seek him and reach out for him and perhaps find him. And God here says that when he created all the nations, he determined where they would be and his purposes was that he would receive glory. He found him. Okay, I'm sorry, go back to verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, by the way, that's back at the Tower of Babel, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. That means according to how many angels there are. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob has allotted his heritage. Now we're talking about the nation of Israel. All right. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field. And he suckled him with honey out of the rock, and the oil out of the flinty rock. Curds from the herd, and milk from the flock, with the fat of lambs, rams of Bashan, and goats, with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshuan, this is again another description of Israel, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. 
I'll provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Are you with me still? Are you seeing the history here? At the beginning, God is the one who dispersed at the Tower of Babel all the nations, and he determined where they were going to live. And I get it according to the number of the angels that there were on the, uh, at that time. And then he chose Jacob, and he made him his special, his portion. And he treated him specially and brought him to himself and brought him into this land and fed him the wheat and the milk and the honey and the fat of the land. And what did Jacob do? What did the nation of Israel do? They turned after other gods and they went after these things. And then he said, because you have gone after gods that aren't really gods to make me jealous, I'm going to take a people that you don't consider a people to make you jealous. Who's that? That's us Gentiles. That's the church age, just like Romans 11 said he would do. But oh, like Romans 11 says, he's not done. Never will he be done with Israel. Verse 22, for a fire is kindled in by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase and sets the, on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them, meaning Israel, and I will spend my arrows on them and they shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust Outdoors the sword shall bereave, and indoors terror for young man and woman alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory, had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, would they understand? They would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand, two have put ten thousand to flight, unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Now we'll keep reading. Look at verse 36. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and, and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and what? Cleanses his people's land. Folks, I don't know if you see this or not, but I think this is the song of Moses. I think the other song of Moses in Exodus 15 is a picture of this song because they praised God for what he had done in delivering them from their enemies. 
But at this moment in Revelation chapter 15, when all of the, 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 the people that were killed during the tribulation period or wouldn't receive the mark are worshiping God and playing this song on their harps, I believe they're going to sing this one right here where they're going to sing this song that obviously the Spirit of God inspired Moses to write because he wrote about stuff that wasn't going to happen for a thousand years or so after he died. The Spirit of God inspired him to write the whole history of Israel, laid all out. And I think at this moment, when it all has become really clear, they're all just going to praise him and sing that song and say, here's what happened. Here's what you've done on the earth. Here's how you dispersed the peoples according to your plan. Here's how you chose Israel to be your special possession. Here's how you blessed them. Here's how they rejected you. You had every right to destroy them and wipe them off the earth, but you didn't because of the promises to the fathers and because of how it would make you look, because you said you would finish with them and you didn't. And because of that, you've kept them and you're going to make a time when you vindicate your people and when you cleanse your land and that's what you're doing God and they're going to be praising him go ahead you got it you got it I actually believe that during this time period remember that the remnant of Israel that escapes into the area of Moab and, and Edom I think they're going to be looking at the scriptures. I think the prophecies say that they're actually going to be calling out. He was beaten for our transgression, wounded for our sins from Isaiah 53. I think the prophecies say that they're going to be reciting that for three days. And then they're going to look on him whom they pierce when he comes back to where they're hiding. And reveals himself and redeems them. And then defeats his enemies all the way through the Battle of Armageddon. We'll get to all that. Some of you say, doesn't he come back to the Mount of Olives? I'm going to show you the Bible actually tells you he comes back to Basra first, where they're hiding. And then he goes to Israel, defeats his enemies in the Battle of Armageddon, and then will ascend the Mount of Olives and the Millennial Kingdom will begin. He doesn't return to the Mount of Olives like I thought for years. And I'll lay all that out later on when I show that to you later on. But what's the song of the Lamb? Okay, I think we found the song of Moses that they're going to be singing. What's the song of the Lamb? Does anybody know? It's in Revelation. Very good. It's in Revelation chapter 5. Look at verses 8 through 14. We've already seen the Song of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. And when he, meaning Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign where? On the earth. On the earth. Then, by the way, this song hasn't happened yet, because has Jesus begun to open the seals? So when the people in heaven at the time of Jesus beginning to open the seals sing that they're going to reign on the earth, there has to be a reigning on the earth future still. Again, when you let the whole of Scripture speak, it's very, very clear. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped him. 
So here we see the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb are going to be sung by these people with their harps. They're around God, at, at, around His throne at that time, while the seventh trumpet's being blown, and these bowls of wrath are being poured out. And they're going to be saying pretty much, God, you're right and just in everything you do, because you've had this planned out for all of time, and it's time for you to reign. And Jesus, you're the one who's going to reign, because you're the one who shed your blood for the sins of people, and you're the one who's done this. And they're going to be praising God as the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. By the way, does anybody think that after the millennial kingdom, we then go to heaven still? I want you to kind of keep this, because I've had that in my mind for a while too, that there's going to be a time where Jesus comes and sets up His kingdom on the earth and will reign with Him on the earth, and then we go to Him no, when you see that, we'll get there in Revelation 22, you're going to see now the dwelling of God is with man. At the end of the millennial kingdom, he makes everything new. But it's another planet, if you will. It's another earth like we have here. It's a new heaven and a new earth. And when it means heaven, it means the new skies and everything. We don't then go to heaven and be with God. He will remake the earth at the end of the millennial kingdom. It'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And he comes and lives with us. But we'll get to that sometime in 2018, probably. I don't know, but we'll see. We got so much to look at here before we go on. Go with me real quick to a couple of passages, and I say a couple meaning three at least. And I want you to see God is right in judging his enemies, and Jesus will be given worship, praise, and a kingdom that will never end. Go with me to Philippians chapter two. There are so, so many prophecies all throughout the Bible that talk about this time that we're looking at in Revelation. Philippians chapter 2, look at verses 5 through 11. A very familiar passage, but now let's read it in this context. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When he sets up his kingdom, everybody is going to acknowledge that he is the Lord. Now let me show you another one. Go to Ephesians. You're in Philippians. Back up one book. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 3 through 10. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. Paul says again here, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on the earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, 
Did you catch that? God has actually, verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 8, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He's made known to us, verse 9, the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. His plan is what? Is going to happen in the fullness of time? It's going to unite all things in heaven and earth under Jesus. The Bible's been talking about this for a long, long time. This day that we're looking at, this time period we're looking at in Revelation of the seventh trumpet and the seven bowls at the end of the tribulation period, right at the very, very end, they've all been prophesied about. Let me show you a couple, couple more. It's in Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verses 1 through 12 and then verse 13 as well. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Does that sound familiar? Some things we've already read about in Revelation. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And look at verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Folks, Jesus is coming back. He's not just coming back to gather us and take us to be with him. He's also going to come back after that to this earth. He is literally going to come back just as sure as he came the first time. Go back with me to Revelation now and go to chapter 16. Revelation 16. Look at verses 1 through 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve." And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. 
The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place in Hebrew is, that is called Armageddon. Now, we haven't even gotten to the seventh bowl yet, and we'll deal with that later on. And we won't even finish verses 1 through 16 tonight in the time that we have left here. But what I want you to see is, and it's going to become more clear in the context as to why, but I believe from the context that these bowls are all poured out on, on the earth in rapid succession, if not almost together. And let me give you a little glimpse as to why. You're going to see in just a little bit, as we look at each of them, that... Well, we see in the first bowl, what happens when they pour out the first bowl? What happens? Sores come out on all the people. And then he pours out the second bowl, and what happens? The sea turns to blood. Remember? Uh, by the way, we've already seen in previous judgments that a third of the sea was turned to blood. Now all what's rest of the oceans becomes the blood of a corpse, by the way. There's, there, there's blood that's in our body right now. When it... Be your body becomes a corpse. Your blood changes a little bit, doesn't it? Congeals and gets pretty nasty and pretty smelly. All of the oceans on the earth will become like that. Pours this, the next bowl on the rivers and the fresh water. All of the fresh water. By the way, do you think mankind's going to last very long on the earth when this happens? There's not going to be any water. So you see how this has to happen kind of quickly and all together? But on top of that, as we'll see later on, because we see another one of these bowls, I think it's the fifth bowl, is poured out on the, 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 the kingdom of the beast. And I'm going to show you, that's Babylon. When the fifth bowl is poured out on the kingdom of the beast, it's actually, and we'll deal with that in a little bit tonight, a lot more detail later on. I believe without question that it, the kingdom of the beast, the headquarters for the Antichrist kingdom in the last days is going to be in Babylon. And we'll lay that all out. And once I show it to you, you'll see it's pretty clear. Hopefully tonight I'll give you a glimpse of that. But the Bible says, and when we get to chapter 17 and 18, and the destruction of Babylon because of its religious idolatry and because of its commercial idolatry, that when the merchants of the sea all watch its burning from a distance, they're all in their ships all over the globe watching. Well, what condition are the ships going to be in if the ocean's already been turned to blood. Do you understand? This is all going to happen right at the same time when God just pours out cataclysmic judgments on the earth. So let's look again real quick at what these bowls say. The first bowl is sores. By the way, if you have Tony's book, look at it. I'm not going to take the time in our study to go there because I think you could just read it for yourself. But Tony's book lays out real well the parallel between what God did in Egypt with the plagues in Egypt to show His glory and what He does at the end of the tribulation period as well, and all the parallel between the two to get the nation of Egypt's attention and to get the world's attention. There's the source, 
Then the seas turn to blood. All the fresh waters turn to blood. The sun scorches people. Now, I got to be honest with you. I'm a little bit sarcastic sometimes and, and cynical. But uh, you know how the world's getting into this big global warming thing. And if we just would get all the nations to agree on our laws and change all the laws across the globe and make them green laws, we can stop this global warming and we can cool the planet and we can watch. Not, but we don't have to worry about the polar ice caps melting and all this kind of stuff, folks. If what I understand the scripture to be showing is going to happen, and I think it will because I think the Bible is pretty true, the church is going to be gone. For a time period, the world will be all under one ruler. There's going to be one monetary system. There's going to be one world religion. Everybody's not going to be able to buy or sell unless they get to the mark of the beast. And they're going to be able to enact all of their green laws. And then the sun is going to scorch them. Do you see it? God says, you, th you think you got global warming? <laughs> when all these Christians are gone that are driving their big gas guzzlers, you can't blame anybody but yourself. Babylon, the, kingdom, the, the fifth one is the, the, the kingdom of the Antichrist. You say, Jim, how do you know it's Babylon? Well, let me take you real quick to Zechariah chapter 5. Go with me to Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5, <clears throat> look at verses 5 through 11. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift up your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar. Some of your Bibles say Babylonia, don't they? To build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Zechariah is given a vision of the iniquity of all the land. That's what I love. Again, symbolic language, but the Bible tells you what it symbolizes. You don't have to guess what the basket represents. By the way, whenever somebody's trying to say, well, this represents this and this represents that, if the Bible doesn't say it represents it, it probably means what it is. But here, the basket represents the iniquity in all the land. The woman in the basket is wickedness. And these, by the way, the only place in the Bible you'll see angels look like women. Everywhere else in the Bible, the angels look like men, except right here. Here are two women angels with the wind in their wings, and they take this basket of the iniquity in all the land and wickedness, and they carry it off. And Zechariah says, where are you taking it? They said, to Babylon. And when it's the right time, the iniquity of all the land and wickedness's headquarters is going to be where? And folks, and we'll get to that when we get to Revelation 17 and Revelation 18. And I lay it all out for you and show you that it's Babylon being destroyed at that time. And we go back and look at the prophecies about the destruction of Babylon. For years, people have said, well, the Bible says that Babylon was to be destroyed, never to be inhabited again. So it can't be Babylon. No, actually, Babylon's being inhabited right now. Saddam Hussein, when he was in power, was rebuilding it. If you actually do a little Google, you'll find that Babylon right now is becoming one of the major tourist destinations of the world. 
Since Saddam has been taken out, a lot of billions of oil dollars have gone into that area. Oil companies have run in there quickly. And actually, it's becoming a major tourist destination because two of the seven wonders of the world are there in Babylon. And it's being rebuilt. And don't you know, when we'll get to this whole study later on, where did organized false religion begin? Babylon. Where did commercial wickedness begin? Babylon. And what did God do? He scattered them. And he began his work with his people Israel. Does that sound familiar? I think we just read it in Deuteronomy 32, didn't we? And at the end, he's going to allow it all to come back and be headquartered right there in Babylon. And that, I believe, where the Bible says the Antichrist kingdom is going to be. And a bowl is going to be poured out on Babylon. And we'll deal with that in chapter 17 and chapter 18. For, you, for long I, years, I tried to read chapter 17 and 18 and think, well, what does this mean? Does this mean America? Or is this the Catholic Church? Or... It's Babylon, folks, and I can't wait to show it to you. Because as you're going to see when we look at the Old Testament prophecies about the destruction of Babylon, when it says never to be inhabited again, it can't have been fulfilled when the Babylonians were destroyed by the Medo-Persians. Remember how we were talking about how Babylon was the one world power, and then the Medo-Persians became the next world power? Where did the Medo-Persians come and inhabit? Babylon. So when the Medo-Persians destroyed Babylon, that couldn't have been the fulfillment of the prophecies that said there's a coming destruction of Babylon, never to be inhabited again. And when you see the difference between the Medo-Persian prophecies and the prophecies about the last days, you'll be very, very clear that one's being done by man, the other one's being by, done by God and his angels, and they're not the same. Folks, I can't wait to show you. In chapter 17 and chapter 18 of Revelation, it is Babylon. And that is where the Antichrist is going to have his headquarters. Now, the sixth bowl is poured out, and we'll get into this in more detail when we come back together next week. But the sixth bowl is poured out, and we see frogs come from these mouths of, of the false prophet and the Antichrist and the dragon. And they go out and they tempt all the kings of the globe to come where? To battle. Armageddon. Now, I'm just going to give you a little glimpse of where we're going to be getting to with the Battle of Armageddon. But if you were to do a study of the Battle of Armageddon, or at least the Valley of Megiddo, where the battle is going to be fought, you're going to find that it's so many miles wide and about 180 to 200 miles long. Go with me real quick to Revelation chapter 14. And look at verses 14 real quick, just to the end of the chapter. Just a little glimpse. We'll come back to this passage later on. Then I looked and behold, 1414, I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like the son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had his authority over the fire. And he called the loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Anybody have any idea how long that is? 180, 184 miles. 
you're going to find that this prophecy is pointing to the blood that's going to be shed at the Battle of Armageddon. All these nations are going to gather there, just outside Jerusalem in this battle. By the way, uh, Napoleon himself stood over that battlefield and said, this is the greatest battlefield on the whole face of the earth. And actually throughout history, many battles have been fought in that place. And the Bible says at the very, very end, while all these things are happening during the tribulation period, the world knows that Jesus is coming. And so Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to have demons come out of their mouths in such a way that they're going to tempt all the kings of the earth to come to this place to have a battle with Jesus. <coughs> Foolish mortals. But that's why when the seventh trumpet was blown, the angels and the voices in heaven began to sing, Now the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. The seventh trumpet, folks, is what is going to set the stage all in rapid succession with the seven bowls. It's not going to be over a long period of time. It's just in the days of that trumpet. They're all going to happen just in a few days. All those things are going to happen. And they're going to gather to fight against Jesus. We're going to get into this in more detail when we come back next week. But it's setting the stage for when Jesus himself comes back. And I can't wait to show that to you too. Because there's a lot of stuff about that that you probably have never seen before. The Bible actually tells us exactly where he's coming back. What's going to happen? It's going to be a fun, fun study. I thank you for coming. We'll see you next week.